0: Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time, bio member Kevin Magruder talks with Satvinder Juss about his book, Bhagat Singh, A Life in Revolution, published by Penguin Random House in December 2022. This interview was recorded on August 2nd, 2023, via Zoom.
1: So, welcome to this bio podcast. First, if you could give us a very brief outline of the life of Bhagat Singh for people who might not be familiar with him. I was not. And that's why I found this book so fascinating, because it opened up a lot of threads that link with some traditions in the United States. But who was he and why was this biography important?
2: Well, indeed, uh, and thank you very much for uh, inviting me to speak to you. It is, in fact, a most intriguing question Even for myself, having by now written two books on this subject, uh, for this reason, we are, of course, all familiar with Franz Fanon. In fact, he's become ever more popular recently. And what uh, Fanon did was to speak about, through his lived experience uh, as a Black man, analyzing the effects of uh, racism on individuals, he said that the only way to deal with colonial violence, a machine of as you said, quote, naked violence, unquote, in which you confronted it with greater violence. And that now idea of dealing with violence with greater violence has become uncontroversial across Asia and Africa, whenever armed mutinies have arisen uh, against uh, Western colonialists. And and what has intrigued me is that the reality is that Bhagat Singh was saying exactly the same thing 40 years earlier in India when he was fighting the colonialists, and yet he's been completely marginalized and and actually written out of of Indian history. And and the reason for that is simply this, that as is well known, the saying that uh, history belongs to the victors, the people that were negotiating with the British Raj were the Congress leaders such as Mahatma Gandhi and Nehru. And they're the ones that actually, in the end, assumed the position of the new government. And for them, they were against Bhagat Singh. So, although today we look at Franz Fanon in a way where we say, well, look, the conditions of the oppressed have not improved, revolts and resistance are taking place. And and there's a resonance now with Fanon whenever we look at, for example, revolts in Sudan, in Algeria, in Hong Kong. In fact, even with the Black Lives Matter idea, the, the fact is that Bhagat Singh is not spoken of at all. The reason he's important is this. The general view in India is, and across the world is, that Indian independence was won through this idea of peaceful non-cooperation and non-violence, the Gandhian idea, which in fact Nelson Mandela also adopted so that his photograph was hanging in Mandela's office and the like. And, and that's the view that has really pervaded across uh, much of the liberated world. It forgets this, however, that alongside this struggle for independence, where you really had two streams, two movements, one, the demands of urban-based politicians like Gandhi and Nero and the others, but the other indigenous Indian organizations of people living off the land. And Indian independence has actually been wrongly framed as a triumph of Gandhian nonviolent ideology. No one gives you freedom simply because you turn the other cheek. There's always a violent struggle wherever you look at it. And in the end, after a very trying and debilitating Second World War that left Western countries bankrupt, the British Empire simply ceased to have the will to continue. And, and independence was given because alongside it, there was this violent struggle. I'm just as much intrigued with it because a decade ago, there was in fact a poll which ran for three weeks for India Today. It's a very learned English uh, journal that I used to subscribe to as a student. In, in that poll, they asked this question, who is the greatest Indian? And the person that came right at the top was Bhagat Singh, followed by Subhash Chandra Bose, uh, who was another revolutionary who died, you know, fighting for freedom. And Gandhi came a distant third. So the reality is that for Indians, when you think about the idea of a visionary leader that wanted to bring about a transformational change, they always go back to Bhagat Singh. And even now, with the current Indian government in, in India, it is Bhagat Singh that is being projected forward. This what did he do? Because he didn't live to be even 25 years no, old. What he did was this. He differed dramatically from Gandhi in the sense that whereas Gandhi drew from mystical traditions of Hinduism, which which often quite unrealistic, this idea of ahimsa, the idea that all life is precious. It's a very good principle to live by on a day-to-day basis. But the notion that you cannot, in fact, revolt or fight back because life is precious was not going to be workable. By contrast, Bhagat Singh drew from Western thinking, so much so that, for example, in 1926, at the age of 18, 19, he accepts the Young India Society, which is directly drawn from Uh, of Young Italy Society in 1831. And then when he is eventually arrested and he is arrested because he throws two smoke bombs in the Delhi Legislative Assembly on the 8th of April, 1929. And he surrenders there for the reason that he says, my only purpose was to make the deaf hear, quote, unquote, and to have the chance to be brought before a court of law and to explain why he had done this. Well, this is directly drawn from the 1893 example of Auguste Volant, an anarchist who also set out to avenge back in 1893 the death of Ravachol, another French anarchist, in the Chamber of Deputies who also threw two smoke bombs and mildly injured 20 deputies before surrendering himself in order to make the deaf here. What uh, Auguste Vallon said was, he said, death to the bourgeoisie as he threw those bombs and proclaimed this. And Bhagat Singh, when he threw his bombs said, long live the revolution. There's a big question here, whether this violent tradition or violent revolt really reached the status of terrorism. Well. Bakhtin himself was absolutely clear that we are not terrorists, that we have a very, very clear agenda as to what we want to achieve. And what they wanted to achieve was this. On the back of the 1917 Russian Revolution, the only workers' revolution ever to have succeeded, when the storming of the Winter Palace in October 1917 led to the first workers' state, where overnight hunger became a thing of the past education for all, full uh, healthcare for everybody, and it transformed society. Now, of course, eventually it imploded, but make no mistake about it, within two decades, 50% of the world was under some form of communist rule. Intellectuals, From across the world, the third world especially, were flocking to learn this new ideology to apply to their oppressed countries. And by every human indices, by the 1960s, the Soviet Union was ahead of America, ahead of every other country. They were the first person to send a person to outer space. Their you know athletes performed far far better than many others in America, and so on and so on and so forth. And and eventually, as I said, it uh, was shown to be a bankrupt ideology. It imploded on itself. But it was that that inspired people. Bhagat Singh, when he comes along, he has imbibed all of this radical literature. And he's not just read Indian literature, but he's read Marx, of course, Marx, Engels, Trotsky, but Thomas Paine. He's read Victor Hugo, Dostoevsky, Spinoza, G.S. Mill, Thomas Jefferson, Tagore, Omar Khayyam, Rousseau, Henry Maine. He's read them all. And he is really, really motivated by this. Now, there are only two incidents where he commits acts of quote unquote violence. The first is this, that when the British delegation arrived in Lahore in 1928, in order to further delay the grant of self-rule, they were met at Lahore railway station by 5,000 protesters. Head of that was this man called Lala Lajpat Rai, who was leading them. And they proclaimed Simon, it was a Simon commission that had arrived. Simon, go back, Simon, go back, Simon, go back. At which point there was a baton charge by the chief superintendent of police. And uh, Lajpat Rai was struck on the head several times. And 10 days later, he succumbed to his injuries and he died. Now, up came the cry for some kind of revenge to be taken against the killing of this grand old man of India. So the 30th of October 1928 is this uh, demonstration. 17th of November 1928, 10 days later, he dies. On the 17th of December 1928, four of these people uh, set out to the police station to see and wait for Chief Superintendent J. S. Scott come out of the Lahore police station so that they can shoot him down in revenge. Because they saw him they as the him. one who gave yeah. the command. That's right. He was. Yeah, he was. He had given the command for this peaceful demonstration to be to be stopped through the felling of these baton attacks. And as it happened, they shot the wrong person. This was on 17 December. And then they fled and they got clean away with it. There were two identity parades and the authorities were unable to identify who these assailants were. But the organization that Bhagat had set up, as I say, modeled on Mazzini, gave out a, a notice and said, we have avenged the death of Lajpat Rai and we are now satisfied. We regret very much that a man's life had to be taken, but this is what we have to do. And, and, and they the, did that in flyers, not just verbally. That, that's right. That's a very, very good point. Because what they did was they they wrote out and Bhagat signed in his handwriting <laughs> his own name on this flyers, which was then posted across... You know, Lahore city and so on. So it was very easy, really, for the authorities to catch them had they been half competent enough. And I've seen telegrams uh, going to and fro from India to, to London where they said that, look, we have just no idea who this person is. And Bhagat Singh gets clean away with it. He flees across on a railway line from Lahore on a train journey a thousand miles across India to Calcutta. And there he mingles with other revolutionaries, becomes a master of camouflage, very difficult to detect and very, you know, and this is an intriguing story, a superb film to be made here really, as to when was he ever sighted? Was it the same Bhagat Singh, this young man, you know, by which they did, removed his turban, cut off his hair, and was now dressed like an Englishman and so on. Except that four months later, In April, he does come back to Lahore, and this is when he throws these two smoke bombs, and he throws them, and then he says to make the deaf fear, and he surrenders himself to the authorities, and that's when they come over and they arrest him. Now, this is something that has not been done before. You have to look at exactly what he does say in the court of law. He makes two speeches. On the day when he comes before the court of law, on the 6th of June 1921. He says, revolution is not a personal vendetta. It is not the cult of the pistol. It is not a time to uh, to achieve petty grievances. Revolution means a means by which manifest injustice must be removed. So they're fighting against colonial rule. They're fighting against injustice. And what happens then is that the judge, Justice Ford, who's trying him, says, Baghat Singh is a quote, unquote, sincere revolutionary, not a terrorist, sincere revolutionary. He then has a right of appeal to the High Court. In the High Court, a week later on the 12th of June, 1921, he again makes another speech. He says, the sword of revolution is sharpened on the wetting stone of ideas. He's an ideas man. you know. And, and this is the great tragedy about the man, that had he not been hanged and had he lived and hanged at the tender age of 23... He would have been a visionary, a man of letters, a real intellectual who would have been able to talk about a transformational society, a society that still hasn't been transformed. You you only only need to look at the state of India today and to see communalism, factional politics, uh, casteism, which is all pervasive in that country. And that would all have ended had Bhagat Singh been able to transform society in the way that he set out to do. Now, another question that Professor McCruder that I I really ought to address is this, how is it that I came to write this book? Well, you know, when I was growing up, and I mean, I was, as it happens, born during colonial days in East Africa, in Tanzania, and I spoke the African Swahili language up to the age of 10 as my first language because my forefathers had been taken over from India during colonial days to open up the interior to work as bureaucrats and the like. And we were the Asians were really the buffer between the ever more oppressed African native population and the ruling, you know, white English population and so on. And my grandfather in the evenings used to tell us about this man Bagat Singh that really independence came to India, not through this peaceful negotiation by Gandhi and so on, but actually through this violent struggle that had been suppressed, that has been written out of Indian history. And the story just lived with me, stayed with me. And then I came to Britain at the age of 10. And I kept reading about how it was that a former Indian High Commissioner to Britain had talked about the time when he had been able to go to Pakistan, now Pakistan, across the border, to do some research on Bhagat Singh. But he'd been told that he couldn't access these papers because they're too sensitive. And then I read an article in the Hindustan Times in 2014 by a leading professor, Professor Chaman, who's a real scholar on this area. And he said... There are some 260 260 files on Bhagat Singh in the Lahore archives on the Pakistan side, which have never been accessed. And they are forbidden. Nobody can go and have a look at them. And if only somebody could one day look at them to see what the true story is. And I thought, ah, ah, this is something that I can do. Why I? Because I was going to go not as an Indian citizen, but as a British citizen, because I now had a British passport, having lived in England all this time. So off I went. I went to the Pakistan High Commission. I asked them for a visa. And they, the, the High Commissioner, much to my enormous surprise, he said, oh, he said, Bhagat Singh, is that why you want to go? He said, Bhagat Singh is our hero. And he was a Muslim Pakistani High Commissioner. And I was delighted. I thought, my God, even in Pakistan, they haven't forgotten him. They haven't forgotten this this, this spark that ignited and really so revitalized that nation. And so off I went. And when I got there, this is the Lahore Civil Secretariat Office, of which William Dalrymple, the leading writer, says that the place is so heavily guarded by soldiers, by machine guns, because it really is the bureaucratic nerve center of the state of Punjab in Pakistan, that even coming to the outside fences and so on is prohibitively difficult. But, you know, my great good luck, when I got there, I said, look, I've come here to do this work. And they looked at me. They saw me as a genuine scholar and they opened their doors and welcomed me with open arms. And I was able to go through all of the 260 files. And the only person, I, I'm happy to say, who was, was able to do that and to construct this story, really, about who Bhagat Singh was, the speeches, the fact that he actually wasn't a revolutionary for the sake of revolution alone, but was actually trying to get independence from the colonial oppressors, in the only way that really was was going to be possible. One of
1: the things that you do in the first part of the book is explain his family background and how important that is to who he became, that he's from a line of revolutionary thinkers and doers. And so he doesn't spring from nowhere.
2: (laughs) At the time of his hanging on the 23rd of March, 1931, he was actually more popular than Mahatma Gandhi. He was the most popular person in India as a freedom fighter. But people forget that really, he had grown out of a tradition of a revolutionary struggle. So his great grandfather actually had fought in the Anglo-Sikh wars with Maharaja Ranjit Singh's uh, army against the British. And his grandfather, Arjun Singh, when the desert lands on the western part of Punjab were being irrigated in 1897 through the canal system, and that land was opened up, in what has been described as the greatest engineering feat of the time, to turn that land into the most fertile land in, in Asia, the British offered 25 acres of land to anyone who cared to come and sow that land and to turn it into an agricultural land. And Arjun Singh, his uh, grandfather, left the Indian part of Punjab and flocked with his family to here. And he then settled down and he began tilling the land. But such was the colonial way of treating these people that they were subjected to very, very high rates, mistreated and demands of huge uh, sort of uh, taxation and so forth, that in, in 1907, What happened was that Bhagat Singh's uh, uncle, Ajit Singh, actually made a speech, translated Pagri Samal Jatta, where he made a speech to say, do honor the integrity of your turban, O Indian peasant. The turban is seen as this honorific, this, this mark of great sort of distinction. And he was saying, look, if you're simply going to let people ride roughshod over you, then you're not really the kind of Sikh that you should be. You you have to honour and fight for it. At which point, sedition charges were brought against him. He was chased out of the land and, in fact, imprisoned. His father, in fact, and in fact, his father was the only person who went on to have children because the youngest of those three brothers, Swaran Singh, was also imprisoned and died in Lahore jail at the age of 23. They got tuberculosis by that stage, way badly, you know, treated and so on. Harjot Singh himself fled and knew the longest period of exile of any revolutionary in India, 40 years. And you see him again, removing his turban, becoming an Arab teacher in Syria, teaching Persian, eventually finds himself actually in Brazil, where he's again, you know, seen as this kind of a sagely person and so on, and only comes back to India when Nehru invites him on the eve of independence in 1947. He arrives on the night and the following day he dies. And Bhagat Singh's father, Kishan Singh, is the only one who went on to have seven children, the eldest of which was Bhagat Singh. And he was charged so many times, nine times, I think, he was uh, sentenced, convicted for sedition. And we know that because the um, colonial officer at the time, in charge of the whole question of, uh, his name was uh, James Campbell Carr in 1917. He was the personal assistant to the director of criminal intelligence. And he uh, said that Kishen Singh was responsible for, quote, a flood of seditious literature in the form of books and pamphlets in the vernacular, unquote. He went on to say that there were only two agencies in the whole of Punjab that were responsible for their production. And the second one of these was actually Kishan Singh. So really, in, in a way, Bhagat Singh was sort of destined to be this. And what is utterly remarkable about him, Professor Kruda, is this. At a time when no one was prepared to give up their life, to give sacrifice in the Congress party or anywhere else, and no one did, Bhagat Singh was the one who invited the gallows. He kissed the gallows, the rope, put it around his neck. And you know, at the age of 23 willingly went to death that has really added the, the romance to the way in which he in which he died and it's it's utterly remarkable
1: your account of that final imprisonment and the fact that he's has access to literature he's reading there but he's also writing a lot can you talk about how his atheism positions him somewhat uniquely to meet the revolutionary goal that you argue may have been accomplished if he had lived
2: he says that in a country where religion is so powerful and superstition is such an important part of it, he was really saying that what religion has done through these holy men is to have oppressed the people and to have made them think that really it is their lot to accept the inferior status of their caste ridden compartmentalization of into the lower orders. And he was saying that this is something that we must fight against, that it stops us having, being able to, to change the society that we want to. So you're absolutely right that this is what he, was the reason why he wanted to write this pamphlet of uh, I'm an atheist. And some people have questioned this pamphlet and said, no, 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 that in the end, oh, he, he tried to become religious. Completely false, because why I'm an atheist was released by his own family, 10 months after he was hanged, and they would not have done that had they believed otherwise. And none of his compatriots who survived, uh, who had not hanged with him, ever said that he had returned back to religion.
1: What were the challenges that you faced in writing this? Because there are, you mentioned other books about Bhagat Singh. You mentioned Mm -hmm. that there's some documents you had that others didn't have. What were the challenges in managing that, creating a narrative that that you said could be made into a movie?
2: <laughs> yes, again, a very good question. Uh, the challenges I, I had were, for example, on the Indian side, the complicity of Mahatma Gandhi, because at no stage did he actually demand in negotiations, because there were three round table negotiations taking place at that time with the British government, that the death sentence to be commuted to life imprisonment. And he makes it quite clear that he didn't. And so there was complicity there, which is now being recognized. So that makes it somewhat unpalatable to be telling the story in this way. The other challenges, of course, were really having access to documentation that uh, tended to show that even Jinnah, Muhammad Ali Jinnah was in favor of having this person released, even in, as he was you know, fighting for an independent state. And so this, this idea that every Muslim, for example, wanted a separate Pakistan state is simply not true. You know? um, You know, the sense of hope that we can come up to realize that in the long run, ultimately, goodness prevails, that behind all the tragedies, ultimately, there is a sense that people have within their hearts to be living a good life and to be doing good and to be rising in favor of common humanity. I think that was a feeling that I kept coming across. As I uncovered more and more material, I mean, I, as I say, I feel very privileged that the Pakistani state has been able to allow me access uh, to this documentation in the way that nobody else has before. I think there were these challenges of telling a story that was unorthodox and unconventional and one that would perhaps not meet with widespread uh, acceptance in, in both countries.
1: At several points in the book, you make links to contemporary issues But in India, how would you like people in India to receive this book, and what would you want them to learn from
2: it? How different India would have been if, instead of being annihilated as a political force, this emerging class of young self-taught intellectuals had been allowed to take their rightful place in the heart of government. And the lesson to be learned is this, that across the world, across the world everywhere, we are seeing the rise of ethno-nationalist politics, whether that's with uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, with Trump in um, America or uh, in India or with Boris Johnson in in England. And I think this idea that uh, had uh, we uh, had a different system which transformed society in the way that the Chinese were able to transform their society and completely get rid of this uh, highly stratified and oppressive colonial system of government, so that we would be able to be united in a struggle against poverty, unemployment, and other evils, and emerge as an industrialized and powerful nation, where everyone was treated equally, rather than governments being able to simply appease a feudal forces like communalism and caste banks, you know. That idea remains ever so powerful because what we are left with still is a country that is struggling to become a modern country, a country that can take its its place amongst others. It's no good simply saying we have 9% or 10% growth every year, you know, GDP. That That's not one way of valuating your, your your position. The way you evaluate it is, you know, the happiness of your countrymen. And that is at an old time law.
1: Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed reading this book. I learned a lot. As I said, I wasn't familiar with Bhagat Singh, but I think for the... Black civil rights movement in the United States, because Martin Luther King is held in high regard, and I think deservedly so. But because he took tactics from Gandhi, we don't critique Gandhi's yes. methods in the way that you do in this book. And I think that will lead people to maybe reevaluate in what situations is nonviolence appropriate. And I saw some parallels between Bhagat Singh and the uh, Black Panther leader, Fred Hampton, who was killed at 21. He was murdered outright. He didn't have a chance to go to court. But he was doing some of the same thing. The Rainbow Coalition that Jesse Jackson used the name was something he created, where he was, as a Black Panther, reaching out to whites in Appalachia, Latinos all in Chicago. And there's kind of that same question. If if he had lived, how might the Black Panthers moved and how might we regard that Black Power movement now? And so there's, I think there's just a lot of fascinating yeah. lessons in this, in this book. Mr. Macruda,
2: I'm, I'm so, so pleased to hear that. I only wish uh, what you say could come true. I think it is very important for countries, uh, people's societies to celebrate all their heroes.
1: Thank you so much.
2: You did. thank you very much.
0: That was bio member Kevin McGruder in conversation with Satvinder Juss about his book, Bagat Singh, A Life in Revolution. It was published by Penguin Random House in December 2022. This interview was recorded via Zoom on August 2nd, 2023. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.